0: Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all of the topics that you're debating in football. I'm Ian McGarry and joining me as always is our guru, Mr Duncan Castles. We start today with, I guess, a bit of a reaction to the things that you guys have been telling us on our timelines on social media, and that was a reporting of Manchester United on Monday's podcast, because today, of course, is your questions answered. Some news to begin with, which is, of course, that Manchester United have reported their annual results for the fiscal year of 2018-2019, and, Duncan, they look pretty positive positive in one sense, because revenue before tax has increased, Um, although there's a warning in there with regards to what might happen in the year 2020 to 21. I'd also like to bring up with you before um, we sort of get into the the argument as such and the debate, and that's the um, information coming out of the Glazers Out campaign, which I think is We should be representing both sides of the argument. Um, So while we report Manchester United's positive results, we shall also report the fact that the Glazers campaign have put out a statement saying, to support our commercial and financial partners is to support the Glazers. We're calling on all fans to stop contributing to the rapid decline of our great club by boycotting all products and services provided by our partners." Duncan, first of all, tell us what the financial results are and then let's go into the um, topic of the possibility of Manchester United fans indeed taking affirmative action and boycotting sponsors.
1: So headline results are that, um, as you say, record revenues, the most money that Manchester United has ever taken as a club um, up to £627.1 million for the 2018-19 financial year, which is up 6.3% on the previous season or financial year, um, up from £590 million. operating profit up to £50 million. Um, pretty much all of that increased revenue has come from an increase in Premier League um, television rights, and uh, money from Champions League um, TV rights, so um, they had an 18% increase in broadcasting revenue. Um, interestingly, the commercial revenue has again flatlined; it's very slightly down on the previous year. Um, and also, but importantly, in this is although they are they've announced record revenues, their guidance to investors is that for the next financial year i.e. the current season revenues will go down they expect them to go down and go down significantly they're guiding us to between 560 million and 580 million for next year so you're looking at a drop of as much as 67 million pounds in revenue um, for this present season which is substantial obviously that is related to not having champions league football this year Um, And they lose substantial revenues from uh, Champions League TV money, um, also gate money, and have to replace them with the lower uh, tier of revenues that they get in the Europa League. And with that warning, I think you should also notice that if they fail to qualify for Champions League again this year, then you'd expect the revenue to go down again in 2021, because then they will lose... Um, the, uh, the, the bonus element of their Adidas sponsorship deal. Um, there's a penalty clause in that deal that if they fail to qualify for Champions League two years running, they lose, I think, £25 million off the £75 million uh, base figure. Um, so they're at risk of, of, uh, of hitting a, a proper um, downward path when it comes to the revenue-generating aspects of the club. I think that that failure to increase commercial revenue, um, which has um, been notable in Manchester United's accounts for a couple of years now, is important, and I think it's particularly important in the context of the Glazers Out movement targeting, specifically targeting, um, Manchester United's sponsors and partners. In their latest attempt to out the Glazers from the club. Um, I think that's a tactically clever approach on their part because um, they're identifying something that's fundamental to Manchester United revenues. Uh, If you exclude Manchester City who have an abnormally high uh, percentage of the revenue attributed to commercial revenue and we know why that is, It, it comes from Abu Dhabi and is essentially uh, manufactured commercial revenue. Uh, Manchester United have the largest percentage, by a significant margin, of of commercial revenue of the clubs in England and a very, very high ratio um, amongst European clubs. I think it's only Bayern Munich who um, generate more of their income through commercial revenue than Manchester United do across the Champions League. So, it's really important to the Glazers making their money. If that boycott was to take hold and take effect and they were able to stop a percentage of their fans um, purchasing and dealing with Manchester United, his very extensive range of sponsors. You could see that having uh, repercussions within the club and making uh, people within the club, Uh, obviously Edward Wood being one of them, his reputation, his status, partially based on on the massive increases in commercial revenue that were achieved um, following his and the Glazers arrival at the club. Um, very nervous if uh, not only the co- commercial revenues uh, were in this flatline state that they have been in for a few years, but actually started to drop because fans of the club were consciously targeting um, a, a, a major part of United's income.
0: The difference now, Duncan, obviously, in terms of recent years um, is that um, the club's performance on the field, which has been relatively poor and obviously not achieving what Manchester United fans expect or indeed desire, is now coupled with um, the potential of a decline in revenue. Now, what we've seen in the past six years is that revenue has in- increased year on year, that Executive Vice Chairman Edward Ed Wood has been able to point to that as a positive in terms of his stewardship of the club. But if you put hand in hand the possibility of decline in profits or revenue increase, as well as the continued shortfalls of what's expected on the pitch from Manchester United. What does that say in terms of how the Glazer family will view that? But also, um, what does it say about what the future might hold in terms of Manchester United's ownership?
1: Okay. I think it's pretty clear that the Glazer family's interest in Manchester United is to make money for Manchester United. So if they see revenue declining, which is the club's own internal expectation for this coming season, is that substantial drop in, in revenue, um, and they see it um, potentially continuing into a second season, then that will uh, affect them because they, it will be harder for them to extract cash in the short term from Manchester United in terms of um, director's dividends uh, and director's fees, Um, It doesn't mean they they will actually reduce them. That will be a decision that they can make as a board as to whether they continue to pay themselves at the same level or even an increased level. But if they do that with reduced revenue coming into the club, it will hit the bottom line. Um, The profitability of the club will decline and the external investors who they had to talk to um, today, um, institutional investors, Uh, may ask questions about that. And I think we saw today the institutional investors asking some questions about the management of the club on the football field, which is not something they've always done in these um, quarterly uh, investors' calls. Uh, We have Woodward um, talking about uh, recruitment decisions um, and saying, mentioning that he'd made commitments to the manager of Laguna Solskjaer in March and saying that those have given the club the building blocks for success. Uh, also saying that we need to be patient and we won't be distracted. So he's he's giving a pretty strong backing there um, to the manager and to the recruitment strategy that they put in place of signing younger players, uh, moving out uh, players on higher wages um, who didn't fit with Solskjaer's uh, blueprint for... Um, attacking, uh, pressing football that we've actually not seen a great deal of evidence of um, on the field this season. Um, he talks about an ethos of, of uh, youth attacking football and returning to that um, and says that that long-term approach will be the right one. So defending what they're doing in the field but actually being asked about it, so that, you know, that, that shows that the institutional investors are concerned um, about the decline in performance and about the, the potential effect that could have on the profitability of the club. I don't think with that revenue decline, you'll see Manchester United dropping out of profit, but the, the profit is very much likely to go down for this coming season, which um, which investors will almost certainly object to and could and should affect the share price of the club, which in turn. Uh, has a potential effect on the, the, the selling price of the club should um, the Glazers decide to cash in, should they get that huge offer, and we're talking you know, multiple billions of pounds as, a, as an asking price for Manchester United, that would, um, that would convince them that it's the right time to cash in on their shareholding, take uh, the the massive profit that would represent over the, um, the 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 initial purchase price of Manchester United when when the Glazers took over was short of eight hundred million pounds, um, which of course the Glazers themselves did not um, fund. It was it was used uh, the the purchase was made by uh, via debt, which was. Um, placed upon the value of the club itself. So um, all of these things are important in this kind of decision making uh, route that the Glazers take as to when, what's the most profitable, what's the most uh, financially effective uh, way of owning the club? um, And at what what time is it right to cash in on their ownership and take the, the, the massive windfall that would be involved in selling the club to new owners?
0: Well, this is your questions answered on the Transfer Window podcast. And uh, just to say, we thank you very much for many of your tweets and questions about Manchester United over the last couple of days. To just close this part of the segment, Duncan, um, lots of our listeners are asking, what is the possibility, again, of Manchester United being not just on the market, but potentially being a club open for a takeover? by owners who might not share the Glazer's philosophy of how the club is run.
1: Well, we talked about this in the podcast um, over the past couple of years. It's uh, the, the feeling in the city, the feeling in the people who are involved in these kinds of transactions, uh, which are, these days are huge transactions. I, you're, you're, you're talking possibly five billion um, pounds, Manchester United that those kind of figures and, and higher are the are the kind of figures that are mentioned as a possible acquisition cost of Manchester United on the current market they 're very clear that those discussions are going on there are interested parties there are people who have looked at the club um, we know that Saudi Arabia has an interest um, that was there have been discussions there Saudi Arabia has um, connections to Manchester United through sponsorships. Um, there is an attraction in Saudi Arabia in following the Qatar Abu Dhabi um, model of buying a football club as a kind of um soft political tool and a PR marketing tool for the country. Saudi Arabia is going down uh, or has Signal that it wants to go down a similar route to um, Qatar and Abu Dhabi in terms of um, liberalising its economy and attracting more um, foreign investment. And it, the suggestion has been that a purchase of Manchester United could be used in that context. Um, obviously, if uh, the country, if the, you know, the monarchy, the, the royal family of Saudi Arabia decided that's what they wanted to do, they easily have the resources to take out uh, the Glazer family at any price and then uh, launch down the model of, um, of controlling the club and in, improving its fortunes on the field by investing. Um, they wouldn't necessarily have to invest their own money. They could use, the, use, their, use mon- their money to clear the debt and therefore open up um, those very high revenues that Manchester United have currently and have had historically, Allow more of those to be invested in the team. Um, is that a good thing for Manchester United? I think that's a difficult argument to make because you have all the huge complications of getting into that nation state ownership that is so controversial in football at present, which has got Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain into the problems they have with football authorities and with other clubs, and do you want a regime like Saudi Arabia's to be using your club as a as a kind of front, a PR front, uh, in the world? Um, you know, it's it, it's not it's not a, a necessarily an appealing prospect if you're looking at it from an ethical point of view. Um, so then, if it's not going to be Saudi Arabia, you're talking about. If it's an individual, you're talking about a, a, a very, very affluent individual who has a lot of cash available to invest into a football club. And, you know, one person who has been mentioned in these discussions is Jim Ratcliffe, um, the wealthiest man in the UK on the last uh, uh, survey that the, the, the Sunday Times put together of, of those wealthy individuals. Um, who has an interest in, in football, has already bought one football club, as we talked about in the podcast, um, has intentions to buy other football clubs, has looked at Chelsea and is a Manchester United supporter, and I'm told has looked at Manchester United as a, a prospective purchase. But from what I understand, not gone particularly far down that route simply because of the scale of, uh, of investment required to take. Manchester United, it would be the most expensive uh, football club purchase ever. Um, you, you, know, you have three clubs in football that have revenues of a similar level to Manchester United and are usually at the Deloitte Money League um, top of, of their list of, of most affluent clubs. Those are Barcelona, Real Madrid, Manchester United. Manchester United is the only one that is available for sale, could be purchased by a, an individual or uh, an entity. Um, and, uh, you know, the expectation from the people that look at this is that when NF Manchester United are sold, that will be the most expensive purchase of a sports franchise, so including uh, American uh, sports, in the history of the world. So, that, you know, that's the scale of, of money we're talking about here and the scale of, of payoff the Glazers are going to get for their near 15-year um, ownership of the club should they choose to sell.
0: I'm sure Manchester City fans will be dancing in the streets of Salford at that possibility of the Glazers making huge amounts of cash from the sale of their club uh, sometime in the future. We're going to shift the focus on the Transfer Window podcast from the collective to the individual, Duncan. And, of course, this week saw the... um, presentation of FIFA's best players, best managers etc. awards at the um, very, very stylish venue of the uh, La Scala Opera House in Milan Italy and um, one of our regular listeners uh, who is at Steel Armoured and um, he probably will need to be uh, protecting himself when um, asking this question, uh, has asked when will the FIFA Best Player Award stop being a popularity contest and select players on merit and what they achieved in the past season past? And I think he means rather than on the reputation. Uh, Leo Messi, obviously, Duncan, was the recipient of the best um, men's player of the year, beating Virgil van Dijk and Cristiano Ronaldo, who was... I would say not suspiciously absent, despite the fact it only takes some 45 minutes to drive from his home to Milan. Um, however, uh, do you think there is a skewed uh, a view, if you like, with regards to who wins this award? Because it does seem to have been dominated by both the Argentina captain and the Portugal captain in the last 10 years.
1: Look, there's no doubt that these kind of awards are popularity contests, their you know, votes. Um, in, in the case of the FIFA award, uh, you have the coaches of each international country, the captains of each international country, a media representative, representative from each country, and then also a fan vote. And the, those four sections of voting are combined, to, are ranked and combined together to, to decide who wins the overall award. And you know, football has changed from a sport where supporters followed primarily a team to a sport where you have, I think, a lot of supporters or followers of the sport who are more interested in individuals than they are in a given team, and will transfer allegiances with um, uh, the transfer of a, of a player to a different club. Not the majority of followers but that that, um that cadre of of supporters that class of supporters has definitely increased and the focus on focus on the individual has undoubtedly increased and you know the 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 importance of the individual to decision making by clubs um the importance of the individual in terms of the budgeting of clubs that the amount of money the amount of the revenue percentage of the revenues that individuals take are capable of taking from the sport has increased to record levels and that, you know, there's a good argument that, that all of those things are justified um, in terms of payments to individuals. The, uh, still, it's still the case if you look at Barcelona's revenue and the percentage of it that goes to Lionel Messi, he still gets a, a small fraction in relative terms. Um, of Barcelona's revenue into his own bank account, and you could argue that his importance to the club is greater um, than the amount he's paid. And you know, I know Cristiano Ronaldo at Real Madrid um, successfully made the argument that his um, not only was his, his performance on the field um, not properly represented in his wage packet, but his his performance as a commercial asset to the club in terms of his social media presence wasn't properly um, compensated by the club and got uh, the highest contract of his, of his career at Real Madrid and, uh, and at the time, the richest contract in football, off the back of that argument, he said, you know, and his representative said, uh, uh, Cristiano has multiples of social media followers um, compared to Real Madrid. He's generating a huge amount of year revenue we want to be compensated for that, or we can take that um, elsewhere if necessary. So football is kind of an individual popularity contest these days. Is it unfair that that the the best player in the world award has been monopolised by Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi over the last decade? I don't think it is. I, I think these are two Absolutely exceptional footballers, not on a a current scale, but on a historical scale, Um, two of the best footballers we've ever seen. Um, You know, there's an argument, and very strong arguments both ways, that one or other of them is the best footballer we've ever seen. Cristiano Ronaldo's aim is to prove himself to be the best sportsman the world has ever seen, which is a, a mark of his ambition. And I think you can contrast with it was a kind of interesting interview Messi did um, for um, FIFA Pro, I think, around this award. Um, the, the outtake of which I saw was basically him talking about how hard um, it was to maintain his standard and how, how much, how more physically demanding um, staying at the level of performance he's at has proved for him. And, and it's kind of very downbeat and gave the gave the impression that he didn't really want to carry on for um a a huge length of time um which is you know significant contrast to Ronaldo so do those two deserve to uh, monopolize them yes I think they do um and and if you want to take it for individual years um I think each in each of those individual years there's an argument that one or the other has been the most important player and I think you know There's been a lot of discussion that Virgil van Dijk should have won last year. Um, Let's do an analysis. If you were a manager of a football team and you had the choice for last season um, of whether to have Lionel Messi, Virgil van Dijk or Cristiano Ronaldo as the key figure in your team um, and you can only have one of them, I don't think you'd pick Virgil van Dijk. I think you would, on last season, you would have picked Lionel Messi. Um, So... Is it unfair that Messi won, um, even though Van Dyke was obviously pivot, pivotal in um, Liverpool's Champions League success? I, I don't think so. Um, I, I think it, it's been overemphasised. And actually, if you look at the voting, you look at the breakdown of the voting which FIFA provides, um, Van Dyke, amongst the coaches, was voted third uh, after... Messi and Ronaldo, amongst the captains, he was voted second, just ahead of Ronaldo. His significant vote was in the media. In the media, he got um, substantially the most first place votes uh, and, so, and was voted substantially first. He had 462 compared to Messi's 364 and Ronaldo's 264. And what that tells me, without wishing to be rude about fellow journalists, is um, the story about Van Dyke and how good he was and I'm not saying he wasn't exceptional last season, he was exceptional, but the story that he was the best player in football last season is very much a story and it's something that the media has generated and the coaches and players and peers thought differently in terms of who they considered to be the best individuals in football last year.
0: Going back to um, the question from Steel Armoured about regarding you know, this, this last season, um, I guess what he's trying to press in terms of um, opinion is, um, are we deciding this award based on uh, a career over 10 years uh, rather than achievements over the last season? Because after all, it is meant to be the FIFA Best Men's Award for the 2018-2019 season when, of course, Virgil van Dijk was outstanding in um, leading Liverpool to a Champions League win as well as coming from the point of winning um, their first Premier League title in more than 20 years. So I suppose that is um, quite an interesting scenario regarding um, the reputation, if you like, that it comes up against with regards to Cristiano and Leo Messi.
1: Yeah, but we can't... Uh, look, how do, you, how do you frame it? Do you say, um, we're going to take away the voting process and we're going to allocate points to players according to whether they won the Champions League, the domestic league and international trophies. Uh, and then we're just going to tally those points up and say, this player won. Well, you know, it <laughs> wouldn't really work because uh, teams are made up of more than one player. So if Jordan Henderson would be up there, um, because he... And James
0: Milder obviously as well.
1: Well, James Milner would deserve to be ahead of James I did Henn, vote for but... James Milder, clearly.
0: <laughs> One, two, and three.
1: Um, so, it, you know, it, 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 is a, it is an impossible um, way. You can't do it allocating points to achievements on the field. Um, you have to make this a, a decision process of electors um, who you... You know, FIFA do instruct them as to the, the the criteria on which they should judge, and they have to assess the relative importance of domestic league, um, relative contribution of an individual to the team, and 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 put that into into their their judgement of over who was the best player overall. And you know, Lionel Messi put up phenomenal numbers last season. Um, he won. Uh, his domestic title Barcelona a very strong team Um, I think we're we're, we've become sort of desensitised to just how good Messi and Ronaldo are and their achievements on the pitch and um, can we say that Van Dijk was as important in, in terms of overall quality of football and what he did on the pitch yes Liverpool were a good team. They didn't win the domestic league. Um, yes, their defence was improved and Van Dijk was a big part of that, but they also had Alison Becker who was, I think, deservedly voted best goalkeeper in the world um, in these awards. So you've got to give a, a degree of contribution to Alison Becker to those improvements. They also had Fabinho in the team who's who's helped them defensively because um, he's, he's simply better than... Um, Jordan Henderson was at, at that role, so you know how special was Van Dyke. Was he? Was his? Was his performance the best in the world last year? I don't honestly don't think it was. Therefore, I think this is the uh, the right um, outcome that that Messi has been uh, voted best. And you know, the argument almost comes down to one game. Um, if it's about winning the Champions League, it's about that match at Anfield. Uh, where Barcelona collapsed and allowed Liverpool to get through uh, a game almost everyone expected them to be eliminated from. Um, And if you remember that game, Messi uh, had uh, numerous close things early on and was also um, kind of taken apart by the Liverpool defence in terms of heavily heavily fouling uh, Andy Robertson shoving his face into the ground, referee not protecting him. So, you know, you can, you can see that either way you like, but you have Jurgen Klopp himself saying Liverpool rode their luck to win the Champions League last season. Uh, on more than one occasion, he said he, did, he doesn't think they were the best team in Europe, but they were the best team at the right times. Um, add all that together, and I think actually the decision's right to, to, to make Messi number one again.
0: Well, also on the subject of the FIFA Awards, Peter M. Smith, who is at Peter Smith Sings. And Peter, if you're ever in a karaoke bar next to Duncan and I, we'll be happy to join you um, in a song. Uh, he says, serious question. I'm happy that Liverpool have players in the FIFA Pro Eleven, but why on earth are there no Manchester City players? In the name of fairness, at least Bernardo Silva and Ryan Sterling should be there. I'm going to think Peter's got a point here um, and makes it well. I think, you know, that given the uh, company an unprecedented treble uh, in English football uh, last season and obviously got close in the Champions League, it does seem slightly strange that FIFA and the awards um, that were being dished out in terms of the FIFA Pro Team of the Year would ignore such significant um, performances by two of the best players in Europe last season. <laughs>
1: Well, I think it's a it's a very good question from a support, a very fair-minded one. I think it's a bit harsh on him to threaten them um, with being in a karaoke box with the two of us as a.
0: No, <laughs> no, come on! Question. That would be that would, listen, Peter. Just, just, you make. Let's make a
1: date now, okay? You'll love it. <laughs> I'll provide the ear defenders uh, for Indeed. you, Peter. Don't worry. Um,
0: yeah. Well, they include I, I, Virgil Van Dijk? Is he in your
1: defender as well? <laughs> He's probably the best year defender in the world, too. Excellent. Um, yeah, I think it is a surprise that not one Manchester City made it into the FIFA Pro Eleven. In fact, the nearest um, anyone got was uh, Bernardo Silva, who was sixth place amongst the midfielders, and Ederson, who was fourth place amongst the goalkeepers. So really, they weren't even close to, to getting in. Um, there were only two Liverpool players in that FIFA Pro 11 as well, so Alisson and Virgil Van Dijk were the only two that made it. Manny and Salah almost in, um, but obviously the forward sections the hardest part of that FIFA Pro team to get into. I think it's a, it's partly a reflection of um, Manchester City's repeated failures in the Champions League. Um, I think when you get this kind of global vote, the focus of players, coaches and media is going to be more on the principal comp- club competition which is by far the Champions League. That's the one that carries the most status. Um, I think we get a bit lost in the Premier League's status. It is the most popular of the domestic leagues, uh, leagues worldwide and it is the most successful from a revenue point of view but um, is it the best league from a footballing perspective? I think it's been proven that that's not the case. If you look at the historical record of English um, teams in European competitions uh, over the last 10 years, they're they're very poor compared to Spain in particular. And and I think, understandably, um, that primarily international audience will put greater weight on achievements in Champions League football than they will in Premier League football and therefore that's damaged, you know, hurts uh, Manchester City's candidacy. But, you know, personal opinion, if you, if you put that aside and we're just picking your own best 11, I'd certainly have one or two Manchester City players in there as well as one or two Liverpool players.
0: Well, I think, as um, our listeners know from the Monday podcast, when I've been my hero, Bernardo Silva, for his hat-trick and his humility as well in accepting the match ball. Uh, My view is pretty clear. I would have certainly had Bernardo Silva in that FIFA Pro Team of the Year. Now, marching on, because we need to, um, and I make that reference because, of course, Leeds United got the Fair Play Award, which caused some controversy as well at the uh, FIFA Awards, Um, to um, Pino at the Pino. Um, who asks us, still nothing on Pochettino and Spurs start to the season. You're only going to Solskjaer's back, who's a much worse squad than Pochettino. Why isn't he under the spotlight? I think Duncan Pino has a point, really, and it's one that I think we have actually touched upon in the podcast in the last couple of weeks, but I suppose not as much because Manchester United, I think there's so much expected of them. Whereas, I, I don't know. And we almost becoming desensitised to Spurs not winning trophies. Therefore, we just kind of, you know, put it on the back burner and think, well, um, if he does win one, then great, because it deserves it. But uh, if he doesn't, then we'll just keep, you know, peddling the same thing, which is that he's put together a really good squad and it will come in time.
1: I think the argument here is that his if you look at his um, return in terms of results uh, since... Uh, February last year, it's actually not very impressive. So um, this season, he's on a on a run of two, just two wins in seven. Um, at the end of last season, he was on a run of just six wins in eighteen, uh, which massed that uh, was masked by the run to the Champions League final. Um, and so in total, you have eight wins um, in twenty five games since the twenty third of February, um, with five draws. Uh, in amongst them, so it's not a great record and I think um, listeners justified in saying why aren't more people asking questions about Pochettino's underperformance Um, obviously you have to factor in a number of things and if you're comparing direct to Solskjaer um, the comparison is obviously that what what does Solskjaer have to back up, what's the history of success Um, that uh, indemnifies him against his bad record. And there isn't one. Pochettino's history of success is huge. And uh, in terms of taking and improving that Tottenham squad and making them consistent uh, qualifiers for the Champions League, which has been his, let's remember, that has been the target given to him by the club's ownership. Um, And ultimately getting them to a Champions League final, which uh, was a very unexpected achievement, obviously a fortunate achievement in many ways if you look through their Champions League campaign, but they got there. And uh, it's hard to see um, that necessarily being repeated um, without a significant degree of investment in the team going forward. Um, so I think, I think that's the, the, the basic difference. I think also if you look at the way they've played this season and the results they've delivered, um, it's not too hard to see those results being quite a bit better had a few things gone in their favour. For example obvious example is the, the goal uh, that VAR um, probably incorrectly chalked off against Son Jong-min last weekend at Leicester, which would have put them 2-0 up away from home against a, a team that's received a lot of plaudits this season for the football and are definitely a difficult side to beat and uh, effectively turned what was almost certainly going to be a win into a defeat. Um, they had, uh, they've had other decisions go against them. Um, Newcastle game, um, hurricane penalty that wasn't given. Um, they have also had in their favour. They probably, they almost certainly should have lost to Manchester City away and uh, managed to come out of that with a draw. Um, I think the, the, the major point of criticism is that they've got ahead in games and, and let them go this season. So the Arsenal match and uh, the Olympiacos Champions League match were both very poor in terms of letting things slip. But do we believe that Pochettino isn't a good manager because he's been on... Um, a substandard run of results if you look at it in terms of wins in those sequence of games. I don't think so. Um, And I think if Daniel Levy was to come to that conclusion and to decide, well, I've had enough of this guy who has repeatedly undermined me in press conferences over the last year and put pressure on me to spend on the team and uh, flirted with other clubs and I'm going to get rid of him, um, I don't think Mauricio Pochettino would have any trouble whatsoever in getting himself a, a new job, um, and he would be an obvious candidate again for Real Madrid and, uh, and the Manchester United jobs were he to be available um, for uh, no compensation fee, whereas if Lugan or Solskjaer was sacked and you know we've we've talked about the indications from Ed Woodward in the investors call today and there's no indication that he's readying to do that but were you sacked today Um, I'll I'll let you Ian judge what kind of jobs he could expect to be offered um, following any sacking from Manchester United after the the record of results he's put up in, in that same period of time
0: as our listeners will know I can only answer that question by saying Woof woof. Now <laughs> FIFA, not the only um, establishment figure who've been handing out gongs this week, because of course, much more importantly than the FIFA best men's, or indeed women's coaches, etc., awards, we have this week's Donkey Award. And we will pay homage to the wonderful presenter of the FIFA awards by declaring this week's donkey in her name. She is the partner, long time, of legendary Juventus goalkeeper, Gigi Buffon. Her name is Alaria D'Amico. And if you have not seen her interview with Jose Mourinho, then we absolutely recommend that you go do that now. Um, But do it perhaps after you've heard the winner of the Donkey Award, because this is the Alaria D'Amico Award for provoking the most hurried exit in football. And as I said, watch that clip with Josie Mourinho when um, the lovely Alario um, asks the question of him about let's imagine the future and there's an intergalactic, interplanetary football match. Who would be the manager of planet Earth's best 11 and what would happen against an interplanetary 11? Now, what exactly she was talking about or even speculating on, we have no idea. But we've taken her up on that challenge and we have got three nominations for the Elaria Danico for provoking the most hard exit in football award. I'm just going to open this interplanetary envelope as we speak and give Duncan the nominations. Um, I think the first one is uh, a real historical classic and one that we might revisit in um maybe, I don't know, interplanetary terms as time goes on. But uh, Roy Keane, the Republic of Ireland captain, who in 2002, during the uh, squad's uh, preparations for the World Cup in Japan, hurriedly exited their um, training base in Saipan, um, having cited musical differences with manager Mick McCarthy at the time. Uh, I think you're all aware of the colourful language which was used during uh, that particular interlocution. So I'll leave you with that one, Duncan. Second uh, in the list of nomination is the um, Chelsea owner, uh, Roman Abramovich, and he's presiding over the sacking of Champions League winning coach, Roberto Di Matteo, in the season which obviously, uh, followed that particular triumph in Munich. Remember, Matteo uh, was seen to whisper, or indeed say to uh, the uh, Russian oligarch on his way up to collect his medal, look what I've done, uh, which I think was indeed his undoing. Um, but third, and certainly not least, we have to go back to our Ritz Duncan, and cite the... Um, on-off transfer of one, Maurizio John Stoney, as uh, he's now known by Celtic fans, uh, when he agreed to sign for Celtic, uh, and indeed uh, then joined Rangers about two weeks later, having paraded himself in a Celtic shirt with then manager Billy McNeil, uh, making a hurried exit across the city to the south of Glasgow, and signing instead for Graham Sunnis. Duncan is all up to you.
1: Well, I think you've got some Manchester City fans excited there by talking about a potential transfer of Maurizio John Stonesie. Um uh, <laughs> Indeed. Uh,
0: Giuseppe John Stonesy.
1: Uh, <laughs> Pep Guardiola excited as well, probably. Um, you probably I got think, less uh, money from
0: him uh, now than, than, uh, than you know Rangers got from Mo Johnson.
1: Mo Johnson, <laughs> Definitely a good candidate, but I, I I'm going to credit him with the, the the courage that was involved in making that switch, even if it was obviously motivated by um, by other matters. So, Casola,
0: are you talking Casola here?
1: I think I think that might have had a, a, an influence on his decision making in these in, the, in the, that context. Um, Roy Keen. Uh, that's a memorable one for me. Um, first World Cup I covered. Um, and I was uh, living in Japan at the time and playing for an Irish team in Tokyo called Canto Celts. And I remember meeting up with some of my fellow Celts in Korea as they um, played in the knockout stages of, uh, of the World Cup following um, Roy Keane's um I think mistaken decision to leave that Ireland squad, which is uh, one of the great high achievers in, in Irish football in history. But the winner for me would be Roman Abramovich and um, his uh, rapid sacking of Roberto Di Matteo, the man he was forced to give a long-term contract to because he won the Champions League. Um, little story about that Um, sacking uh, that was recounted to me um, in its aftermath, which was that in Di Matteo's, just his ninth game, uh, competitive game, as full-time Chelsea manager, he was away at Arsenal um, and uh, the score was level at half-time. At this point, he had lost just one competitive game uh, during that period, which was to Atletico Madrid in the Super Cup. Uh, won the majority of his matches and at half time, um, Marina Granovskaya is reported to have uh, bumped into uh, a friend of uh, Di Matteo's and with a with a perplexed um, look on her face and the friend asked what the problem was um, for Marina and said oh, I, I, I might have to sack Roberto at the end of this game um, so that shows you I think the urgency with which um, Abramovich was looking for an excuse to get rid of De Matteo, given that he had barely lost a match, it was only 1-1 against Arsenal, and they actually went on to win that game, so he had to wait a little bit longer to, to get rid of his man. So forced exits um, for the um, out-of-the-world D'Amico um, goes to Roman Abramovich.
0: Well, an historic win, I'm pretty sure, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, listeners, um, that is Roman Bra- uh, first Donkey Award which, given his profile in English football, is something, you know, which is a little bit of a surprise. Um, but we're very pleased, all, as always, to uh, package up and send that golden statue off to Mr Abramovich for his win in terms of the Ilaria D'Amico provoking most hurried exit in football award. Um, of course, this has been your questions answered on Wednesday's Transfer Window podcast. We um, urge you and we encourage you to continue the debate with us. Um, You've heard us answer some of your questions and we're grateful to all the questions that we receive. And then, again, we urge you to um, do the same next Wednesday. However, to continue the debate, please do. Uh, we love to engage with you, as you know. um, Do it on at Transfer Podcast, which is the main Twitter account for the podcast, or indeed individually with... um, at Duncan Castles, and myself, at GarboSJ, and we can keep the conversation going. We will be back on Friday, of course, with uh, more information, news and analysis on football, which we look forward to hearing from you about then. But for now, we will see you through the transfer window, and thanks for listening.